What are you really sure about? Well, we're going to find out, or better still, uh, you are. It's the first of a new series of studies today on Search for Truth, which is your Bible study programme with your teacher, Brian Johnston. The series is called Total Conviction, and today it's about being convinced about the inspired Word of God. And I'm so glad that you can be with me today because this is a very important study. It's about being really sure that the Bible is the Word of God. That is, it's God's voice to you and me today. Now, I'm sure you'll enjoy listening today. I've read Brian's script and felt inspired, and I'm very grateful to those in the past who've brought us the Bible in our own language and at great personal cost. And I'm sure you will feel the same way too as you listen to Brian. And here he is. Thanks, John. Yes, I'd like to explore with you, if I may, a single Greek word that's found four times in the New Testament. The word is pleurophoria, and it means full assurance or total conviction. This means we're going to be talking about things most surely believed among us. In other words, things that belong to our core convictions. We hope to explore the four things the Holy Spirit has related this word to in the context of its occurrence each time in the New Testament. We start off with something I hope we can agree on, or at least very readily become convinced of, and that's the Bible being the inspired Word of God. First, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5, we see the Holy Spirit connects this word, for full assurance, with the Scriptures the word of God itself. The Apostle Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of man we prove to be among you for your sake. There's a verse that's related to that in the next chapter, verse 13, where the Apostle adds that when he preached the word to them with that kind of conviction, they, to their credit, received it not as the word of men, but as the word of God, which it truly is. It's specifically the gospel that the full conviction spoken of here is linked with. But the gospel is, of course, Bible-based. And the Bible as a whole is its widest context, for it was first preached in the third chapter of Genesis. And it's our conviction that the entire Bible is God's word, and that there's no book like it. It's God's one and only written communication to us, and in it he discloses himself and all that's his will for us. It was the Scottish historian, playwright and poet, Sir Walter Scott, who when he was lying, dying in his office, said to his attendants, bring me the book. They looked at the book-lined shelves in the room that he was lying in and said to him, sire, which book? He said to them, there is only one book. Bring the Bible, of course. There's no other book like it. And of course, we hold to that same conviction that there's no book like the Bible. It's the Word of God, and it addresses itself with absolute authority on every topic that it covers. The preacher, Campbell Morgan, at an early stage in his preaching career, began to have doubts about his Bible, about it being the Word of God. He was saying to himself, I wonder if this book really is everything my father claims it to be the inspired word of God. This doubt led him to take away all his commentaries, all his Bible dictionaries, all his Bible study aids. He put them in a cupboard and locked the door. And he says later in his memoirs that he could still hear the click of the lock 
as he shut away all those books. He turned only to the Bible itself, and he prayed that the Lord would show him and convince him that this was uniquely God's word in its fullest inspiration, exactly as his father believed it to be. He said, if what my father is saying is true, this book in and of itself should convince me. Then he sat down with his open Bible and read through it and was indeed convinced that this is the word of God. And he then devoted the rest of his life to become the preacher that he was. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 tells us that God's word is inspired, that every scripture is inspired of God. It's God-breathed. Some people tell us that this book contains the Word of God, but don't settle for that. This book does not simply contain the Word of God, but it is the Word of God. Everything that it contains is God's Word, His authoritative communication to us. The Bible is inspired on every topic that it addresses, and every word of Scripture comes within the scope of the Holy Spirit's supervision and superintendence as he caused precisely these words to be chosen by the human authors. John Wesley had a prayer which said, Lord, make me a man of one book. And that book, of course, was the book of Scripture, God's book. Not perhaps in his day, but certainly today, someone would be looked upon as an obscurantist if he or she took that view. Why do you shun all the learning, all the helpful books, all the education of books that are in this world and just confine yourself to one book? Why narrow your horizons down to just one? The answer was that John Wesley knew there was no book like the Bible and he made himself a man of that one book, so much so that it said that in his life he preached 40,000 sermons. John Wesley was a man who made himself a man of one book. We don't need to confine ourselves to only ever read the Bible, but it should have the first priority and the prime place in our lives and certainly bring with it the conviction that there's no book like it. It has no peers because this is God's book. I pass very frequently through the country of Belgium, heading to Antwerp, and I often think about someone that we are in tremendous debt to for our English Bible, and that's William Tyndale, of course. In 1536, he was martyred near to the Belgian border and his last writing was to whomever was in charge of the squalid dungeon in which he found himself. And he wrote ever so graciously, asking the clemency of the one who had incarcerated him that he might speak to the commissary and ask for him to be granted a warm cap because, he said, he suffered with a terrific cold in the head in that dank cell. He said also, please send me a warmer jacket and please, if I may have a piece of cloth with which to patch my leggings and may I have, most of all, my Hebrew Bible from among my belongings with my Hebrew grammar and my Hebrew dictionary. Oh, and also a lamp, please, so that in these wearisome, long, dark evenings I may study the scriptures. But he said that if any other sentence had been passed for him, he would take it patiently and subject himself to the will of God and to the glory of the grace of his Lord Jesus Christ. He even asked that the Spirit would always direct his jailer's heart. Tyndale was granted the winter because he was arrested in the May of 1535, having completed his second translation of the New Testament in 1534, 
and it was in the August of 1536 that Tyndale was led out, strangled and burned at the stake, dying without marriage and without burial. He was a man who gave his life for the scriptures he loved, having taken the Greek text of Erasmus and having given us the first translation from the Greek straight into English. He was a phenomenal scholar who had learned eight languages. Between his two translations of the New Testament, in an eight-year period, he learned Hebrew so that he might give more accurate treatment to the nuances even of the Greek text. And 90% of the authorised version text in the New Testament that we have today is William Tyndale's translation. He did it because he knew with all his heart that this was God's word, and he longed that we would have in our hands the Bible in our own mother tongue. People of whom this world is not worthy have given their lives, and therefore surely we have this conviction that this is God's word, and we should study it as Tyndale longed to study it, but now with all the comparative comfort that we have in our homes, yet still with the full conviction that this is truly God's word. It surely helps us to appreciate God's word when we know that we can be sure that the Bible we have is true to the original form in which it was communicated. It's well known and widely reported, so it's easy for you to check out, that from among all ancient literature, nothing comes even remotely close to the Bible in passing the standard literary tests for a book being true to its original form. What's more, by making painstaking comparisons between thousands of early language fragments, experts working like detectives are able to make a strong case for knowing pretty well exactly what the original text of the Bible said. And based on that knowledge, we can be confident that our English language Bibles are reliable. The Bible is such a special book from God. He used about 40 human authors, but behind them all, He's its ultimate author, and it's his revelation to us, affirmed by lots of its predictions having been fulfilled with exact precision. So, it's no doubt very special, but in the main, we're meant to read it like any other book, taking its words to have their normal meanings. When we read it, we should read each verse in its context. Our first base, as it were, is to discover what it meant to those who first heard that verse. What it now means for us today must be consistent with that. The very last thing we should be doing is plucking a verse right out from its surrounding context and making it carry our own subjective and imagined meaning. We are to read meaning out from the text, not read our own into it. The Bible isn't written much like a textbook. For much of the time, God instructs us through narrating the life experiences of others we begin to gain a clear sense of what God approves in their lives, which we can then begin to apply in our own life. There's no situation in life for which we can't find guidance, at least in principle, from this vast store of human encounters with God. As we read its pages regularly, we'll find our attention is often drawn to certain statements it makes, and we begin to sense their particular relevance to decisions we have pending, as well as to other of life's experiences. You see, the greatest wonder of the Bible is that God speaks to us through its pages. In summary, we're tracking one word that appears four times in the New Testament. 
whether it's rendered full assurance or total conviction, you get the idea. These are the things that are to be surely believed among us. And these are the things that will anchor us in our faith. Because when you've seen these things, and when you appreciate the preciousness of these things, you won't be able to walk away. In its first application, we've seen that it relates to the Bible and us having the total conviction that it, and it alone, is the Word of God. Now there's a book, as usual, which contains all the transcripts of the talks in these programmes and it's available simply uh, by asking. So if you'd like a copy of the book, simply ask for Total Conviction. That's its title. And you can do this by email or by post. And here's our address. Search for Truth, Hayes Press, The Barn, Flaxlands, Royal Wootton Bassett, Swindon, SN48DY, UK. Our email address is sft at churchesofgod.info. Well, did you enjoy today's study and feel a deeper appreciation of the value of your Bible? You know I did. And next week we study being convinced about the incomparable Christ of God. And that promise is to be a stimulus for greater appreciation and to get a closer relationship with our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. So I hope you can benefit by joining me. Until then, it's cheerio and very best wishes from Brian, David and uh, me, John. So see you soon and may God richly bless you. Yeah.